As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. You already know when I bring back a guest to the Malcolm Effect, it's because I'm so excited to be in conversation with them once again and just unpack things. Welcome back, Dr. Aurelian Mondon. Thank you so much for coming back to the Malcolm Effect. My pleasure. Great to be back on. Absolute pleasure. Let's go straight into it. Culture wars. What the hell is happening? All across Europe, all across in the UK context, America, we seem to see or hear about a culture war unfolding between young and old, and then some people racialize it, or between rich and poor. No, it's not even between rich and poor. I wish it was between rich and poor, actually. That would be <laughs> that would be a, a battle I'll get behind. But when we think of culture wars, where do we Oh, or what do we owe its genealogy to, I guess? Well, I mean, it, it's, the, it's the good old kind of diversion that the kind of right wing can muster to, to actually take our attention away from, from various types of crisis. And you said, you know, a battle between rich and poor. And that's the thing. Sometimes we talk about the battle between rich and poor, but they kind of shift it. And instead of actually talking about the economy and talking about capitalism and to, talking about economic inequalities and the cost of living, poverty and all of these things, instead they, they they try to split the working class, they try to split the poor, they try to split the people into various categories, which then prevent them from fighting actually who is responsible for their plight. And, and in a way, it seems like we are going always in circle and we are always falling for the same old kind of tricks that the right has been using for, 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 for you know, decades and, and, and even centuries, which is splitting us and managing to kind of divide us into, into little groups fighting each other as opposed to fighting them. Absolutely. So essentially what you're saying, the right uses these culture wars to mystify and distract us from what the true sources of oppression are, being like, you know, corporate kind of greed, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely, exactly. And uh, what, what's fascinating is that most people don't buy it. And in yeah. a way, it's a very elitist discourse, both for people who are hyping the culture wars and who are for, for whom the culture war is self-serving, but also for the opponents to some extent. I think we are wasting a massive amount of energy fighting both culture wars while we should be fighting for a better world. Um, and it seems like we are kind of chasing windmills almost. I know, because you commented saying, I mean, you put a thread up. It was like four out of five people believe in racial justice. Was that on the Guardian article? It was, yeah. And what was your kind of reflections and comments on that? Well, what, what I find fascinating is the Guardian putting that, that out, but then falling for, for debates that shouldn't be taking place. It's like, you know, the Guardian knows that most people actually have bigger concerns than, say, immigration or, or the rise of wokeism or, or, or cultural race theory or, or whatever kind of, or, or statues being, you know, dismantled and things like that. People, yeah. people have other concerns or most people have other concerns. You know, we, we live in a time when, you know, poverty is on the rise, cost of living is, is, is getting worse. Uh, young people cannot get on the ladder in, in the UK, for example, you know, on the housing ladder. Most yeah. most people, most young people feel that their lives is going to be worse off than their parents and grandparents. You know, these are these are things that you know for a long time we didn't think we, we would see happen in societies like like the UK, the US, France, and, yeah. and you know the, the kind of global north in a way. And and you know, so people are worried for their children, people are worried for their grandparents, for their parents, all of these kind of things. And instead, what we're focusing on, or what we're focusing a massive amount of energy on, and when I say we, I talk 
I'm talking about the people who have access to shaping public discourse. So, you know, it could be the media, it could be politicians, but also to some extent academics is this kind of non-issues that we then end up hyping and and making as if they were massive issues. And, and, and I found this poll very interesting because The Guardian reports on it. And yet you can be sure that The Guardian the next day or even on the same day will be reporting on some kind of cultural issue, placing it at the center of the agenda, even though really that's not what we should care about. And I think, you know, one of the, to me, one of the kind of real, one of the best examples for that is, is trans rights at the moment and, and, and the way yes. trans people are being threatened by the culture war and by, by reactionary voices, even though most people probably wouldn't care. And it's, you know, they have other issues. And yet, you know, we, we find this kind of enemy and we create this enemy and people are at the sharp end of that creation of this enemy. And that's uh, incredibly, incredibly sad for and dangerous for, for, for trans people. And it's incredible that's how okay. it's pushed by mainstream voices. And, and it's unforgivable, to be honest. But why not? Yeah, no, I totally agree. What I don't understand is why does it seem then in, in your kind of research and, you know, tracking far right and, and, and their kind of output, why does it seem that there's so much cultural capital in being reactionary and asking such disgusting questions about trans people? Like, what is there to gain? What is the right you doing here? Well, it's, it's a diversion, right? I mean, look at how many crises we are facing at the moment, you know, both nationally, regionally, globally, and so on. There, there are so many things that we need to reckon with, you know, from, from the rise of inequality, from, you know, and I'm talking about inequality here within, within certain countries, but also globally as well, you know, the kind of yeah. things we haven't yet reconciled ourselves with and we haven't really addressed, uh, you know, the, the aftermath of, 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 of colonization, all of these kind of things that, 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 that we haven't addressed. But I'm even talking about crises that are, that are newer and that are really developing very, very quickly, like like global warming, like the resurgence yeah. of fascism and all of these kind of things we, we don't address. And instead, we are told to think about things that that should be non-issues. Unfortunately, they're not non-issues, but, but they should be non-issues. Yeah. The fact that trans people should have the right to do whatever they want, it seems pretty obvious. The fact that Muslim women should be able, exactly. able to wear whatever they want should be, again, a non-issue. And yet we are told that, you know, trans people are a threat or Muslim women are a threat or immigrants are a threat. And this, of course, occupies our kind of collective our collective brain space almost, right? And what we can focus on. And it shapes the agenda. And so instead of thinking about the environment or instead of thinking about the environment in a kind of global and equal way, instead of thinking about the past as something that we should look at critically and, and address uh, through reparations, we, we think about it through the eyes of the, of the right and far right and play right yeah. into their own hands, obviously, uh, because, because the way they divide us uh, is to serve their own interests as opposed to serve the interests of all. But given so how much like, and I agree with you totally, but I also kind of, I guess I always wonder back and forth in my mind, given the influence of, let's say, the likes of a Jordan Peterson, or let's say, the, and he's putting out his misinformation, or the likes of someone like Ben Shapiro and these, you know, folks, these four intellectuals, and, and I shouldn't even call them intellectuals at all, <laughs> but these people these people isn't there something to be said about combating the misinformation disinformation they put out there on no well absolutely right like i'm i'm not saying we shouldn't combat it and we should absolutely combat the far and the extreme right because they have a real impact on the people at the sharp ends you know and 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 they are yeah. They, you know, they, they, this leads to kind of violence, both both symbolic, discursive, and uh, and physical violence on, on on various communities. So absolutely, we should combat yeah. the far and the extreme right. What we shouldn't do though is fall for the narratives in a way and make them look bigger than they are. You know, so what 
what, what I'm talking about, what we need to avoid, you know, and that's what frustrates me when I see an article like the one in The Guardian that, that, that shows quite clearly that actually people don't care about these issues and people are mostly on the right side of these issues. And by the right side, I don't mean the, the right-wing side of these issues, but yeah. kind of like, you know, the more kind of progressive side of these issues when it comes to so-called wokeism in inverted commas. Yeah. Instead, you, you have The Guardian telling you that and then you have The Guardian, you know, running running campaigns on, on, on so-called populism, for example, and giving a massive amount of space to, to so-called populist figures who, in fact, quite generally are far-right figures talking about anti-immigration, talking about kind of great replacement, all of these kind of things. And of course, The Guardian is, is, is talking about these people in a, in a way that, that is supposedly opposing them, right? The Guardian is not far-right. Yeah. But at the same time, it's legitimizing their position by saying, you know, well, they, they are a dangerous alternative to the status quo. And they certainly are. But they're also a limited alternative to the status quo. And so we need to talk about them much more carefully without euphemizing their politics, which means we shouldn't call them populist, but we should call them far right, racist, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and other more appropriate terms. But we should also not cover them by giving them platforms. We should cover them by deconstructing their ideas and only do that when it's necessary. And then we should give a much bigger amount of space in our public discourse to, to other issues as well, so that we don't hype these uh, these people, right? Jordan Peterson has far too many followers. All the kind of reactionary intellectuals or, or, or pseudo-intellectuals have far too many followers, far too much power given to them by various platforms. But that power and that popularity is still incredibly limited, right? And compared to the amount of coverage we give them, it's it's mad. I mean, just, just think about it, in, for example, with the recent French election, We've been yeah. talking about the far right and the Rassemblement National and the Le Pen's for decades in France in, in an incredibly disproportionate manner. And even this time around, we've been talking about the far right in an incredibly disproportionate manner. And the Front National at the end of the day got around 27% of a registered vote, which is far too much, right? And we should be incredibly yeah. concerned by that. But 27% of, of the people who can vote in France decided to vote for someone whose father was a fascist and, yeah. and who you know, might have changed herself, but many members of her party remain very much attached to the same kind of ideas and the party itself is definitely yeah. a far or extreme right party. So we should be incredibly concerned about that. But we should also remember that three out of four voters, and that doesn't even include all the people who cannot vote because they're poorly registered or because they're immigrants and so on and so forth, who live in France, yeah. pay tax and so on, did not vote for her. So yes, we should worry about this 27%, but we should worry about this 27% and then think about the three quarters of the population who have rejected that, that alternative. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. then that gives us other opportunities to think beyond that because the problem is at the moment what we have, and that's exactly the same thing we have in the culture war, is two sides that seem to be battling it out. The liberal center, which is satisfying no one, which is not addressing the many crises we are facing, environment, economic crisis, various forms of kind of justice that we are not seeing happening. You know, think about what's happening in the US right now with the, with the Supreme Court, right? You know, the Democrats yeah. could have acted to prevent this from happening, and they didn't. So you have a liberal center, and then the liberal center is using the threat of the far right as if, well, if you don't have us, you'll have worse. You'll have a fascist, you'll have Trump, you'll have a yeah. far right, you'll have white supremacists. But that's not that's not democracy, right? That's not a solution. We can't just have the least worst of the two. And what we need to do as the left, I think, is, is really open this all up and say, look, the far right is incredibly worrying and it needs to be combated. It needs to be combated on the streets. It needs to be combated discursively and so on. But it can't occupy our entire brain space. We need to also offer alternatives. We also need to speak exactly. for the left, not just against the right and far right. No, absolutely. And also, I think I was speaking to my friend Deej about this and I was listening to her in our podcast, my good friend. And she made a point and said, 
us leftists are so terrible at propaganda. Like we need more proper leftist propaganda <laughs> in many ways. But we also need, and I, I say that half jokingly, but also I find that we need to gatekeep our language. Mm. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we need, like our terms have meanings. Like imperialism has a meaning. Imperialism is not just war any kind of war. War is obviously always bad, but imperialism has meaning. Certain things, certain, our our radical language for all too often has just been by the liberal centre cannibalised and taken over and repurposed and commodified and sold back to us. And I find that leftists don't do a good job of keeping their language and keeping to the things that really matter for what leftists should stand for, unfortunately. And again, we've become too embroiled in this kind of nonsense culture war of we don't even have seem to have any ideas anymore, which we should, but we seem to just be responding to the right, totally responding to whatever the, the right sets the discourse and we're always on the back foot responding. And I don't understand why we're so weak in this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's a very good point. And that's something that I've, that I've been thinking about, right? I mean, I spent the last 15 years kind of researching the far right and contextualizing the yeah. kind of rise of reaction. But what I've realized as well and what I found incredibly frustrating because, because you know, my, my work comes like my my work is kind of political in a way right i'm i'm not just yeah. looking at the far right in some kind of objective and neutral manner i'm i'm looking at the far right to combat it but what yeah. i've realized in a way in the, you know in through my work and through through reading other people's work is that quite often our work on the left is reactive we we are reacting against the far right and we we seem to have kind of forgotten to kind of create our own narratives and to kind of create our own ways out of a of a crisis we are living through and uh, and and there are good reasons for that you know some some of the good reasons for that is that well we don't really have the time to to spend to yeah. to think you know very abstractly about hegemony and we don't have you know we can't mm-hmm. possibly say well we're gonna you know take a longer view and wait forty years to develop a counter hegemonic project but because we just simply don't have that time you know people are dying. Yeah people are suffering yep. things could get a lot worse very quickly because of the climate crisis because of the resurgence of fascism and eco-fascism because of you know various things that are taking place right here right now so there is no choice yeah. for the left but to react to that reaction but i think we still need to make time for for a more ambitious counter hegemonic project and and you know like yeah. to me what that brings me back to what the the far right has done so well to some extent but again they've done it so well because they had they had the time to do it is you know in the 70s 60s 70s when far-right politics in in europe in particular was you know at an idea no one was kind of voting for the far right anymore there was still this kind of the second world war was still very kind of yeah. important symbolically to kind of push these ideas into the margins of politics and, and make them a big no-no a big taboo in, in mainstream politics and and the the far-right intellectuals at the time you know decided to kind of like almost not go back to basics because they never had these basics but to kind of like borrow from Antonio Gramsci and start thinking about hegemony more carefully and they played that long game which was you know before we win political power we need to win cultural power and from them on what they tried to do is not to win elections necessarily they did compete but some of them didn't even what they tried to do is kind of get gain access to public discourse and you know start changing ideas and so for example they moved away from biological racism and they started talking about racism in more cultural terms it's exactly the same racializing process of course but it's a lot more palatable because you can't be compared quite as easily to the nazis right because you can say well i'm not talking about race i'm talking about culture or i'm talking about religion you know but at the end of the day you know the way islamophobes talk about islam is not about theology it's not about religion it's very much about a racializing process and this is very clever because in a way it's been lapped up by 
by the kind of liberal center who hadn't which hadn't really reckoned at the time with with actually its responsibility in the rise of of various reactionary politics and any of the oppressions that have been core to the history of liberalism and these kind of ideas were not completely alien to liberalism quite the contrary and so they were then reabsorbed and i'm still fascinated by the way many kind of liberals and I'm, you know, we can discuss the word liberal later, and I'm using it kind of, you know, a bit, a bit carelessly here because, you know, we like we want to talk obviously, and I don't want to bore you with yeah. with various things, but we can we can come back to that. But the way, the way many liberals are kind of shocked when this when they see things happen, like you know what's happening in the U.S. with with abortion at the moment, and how they're like, oh my God, how can this be happening? And it's like, well, we've been sold that idea that progress is almost irresistible, that progress will happen. You know, we've been sold in, in the early 90s that we had reached the end of history, you know, like with Fukuyama yes. and all that. It was it was rubbish. And Fukuyama himself agreed it was rubbish. And yet everyone agrees it's rubbish. And yet it still has such a grip on so many people, so many kind of people who have access to shaping mainstream discourse that they still hold on to that idea that liberalism somehow will protect us in and of itself from reaction, even yes. though a very quick look at history shows that liberalism has never been against reaction and, in fact, has accommodated reaction very, very well. And whenever there's been progress made, it wasn't because of liberalism. It was because of the people fighting the liberal elite to kind of push equality, to push justice and things like that. You know, think about the civil rights movement in the United States. Think about the various kind of yeah. movements for the right to vote for women or for various people and all of these kind of things. This was not given by the liberal elite. This was give, this was abandoned by the liberal elite because because the the, the, the kind of counter movement was so strong, and yeah. and yet we've forgotten about all of that, and we're just relying far too often on liberalism to save us. And we need to go beyond that. We can't just think of liberalism as a bulwark against the far right because liberalism can certainly uh, accommodate the far right and has in the past and and has accommodated also far right ideas and 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 ideas that are not even far right, like, you know, systemic racism, sexism, and so on yeah. and so forth, which are part and parcel of, of ne- not necessarily liberalism, liberalism as an ideal, but liberalism in practice, for sure. So what is it, if you don't mind me asking, what mm-hmm. is it about liberalism that makes it so accommodating to reaction well, for it, our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not just accommodating accommodating to reaction. It's accommodating to any any kind of ideology to some extent. That's that's the great strength yeah. of liberalism, right? Liberalism, for example, if you think about liberalism in the 60s in the in the kind of global north, and, and I know that I've been talking a lot about the global north because that's that's where you know my, my, my research is based and I think I should qualify yeah. it here. But you know when you look at liberalism in the global north, it, it was quite flexible and adaptable. And in the 60s, for example, you know, you could see it becoming more progressive in terms of of, of gender rights, in terms of sexuality, yeah. in terms of of the rights for various minorities and things like that. And and so you know when there was enough of a push to stay in power, liberals could could actually absorb all of this. They were not happy about it necessarily, but they they could absorb it. Yeah. And so you know that that's the thing about liberalism. I don't think we we can paint an entirely negative picture of liberalism because because progress has happened and i don't want to kind of whitewash that at all but just as progress has happened with liberalism progress can be taken away and the progress that has happened under liberalism is not because of liberalism in and of itself it's because of a movement who've who've pushed that against quite often the the wish and, and and the will of liberal elites and to some extent this is exactly the same that's happening with reactionary politics a lot of liberal elites don't want to see reactionary politics right front and center right and i think many of them who are talking about abortion right now in the United States are honest about it. They don't want abortion laws to be repealed or anything like that. But at the same time, they've done nothing to prevent it and they will accommodate this kind of reaction if that keeps certain interests in power. 
Exactly. And I think speaking about the long game, many people have said that the Roe v. Wade isn't just today. This has been from the 70s in the making. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's, again, I think we are stuck in this idea that that progress is irresistible. And and, and yet, you know, if we look at, at the last five decades, we can see that, you know, this is a lot of the kind of rights that we've achieved are being chipped away. And you know, it's it's fascinating to me that people see, you know, 2016, for example, as a major turning point, you know, with the election of Donald Trump, with, with Brexit in the UK, with the rise of the far right in various other countries. But it's like this kind of presentism is preventing us from, yeah. from actually, you know, seeing that the right has really got their act together quite a few decades ago and we've been very complacent on the on, on the on the center left in a way and and, and quite often the, the, the center left and the liberal left has been far too harsh on the radical left preventing actually real change to be enshrined real change yeah. to be pushed telling telling the more radical side of the left to say like you look wait we can't be too demanding we need to bring everyone together i mean just think about biden's election right like biden yeah. is elected what does he say he talks about reconciliation with with the republicans and and with exactly. the trump voters and it's madness it's like how can you talk about reconciliation the day after you're elected when so many people who voted for you have suffered for four for four years of donald trump racializing them demonizing them and all of these kind of things i mean it's 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 madness we need to be prouder to be on the left and i don't think you know uh, we need absolutely. to be more radical absolutely uh, and i think uh, i always left we have to those on the left, I keep, I keep telling people, my friends, my comrades on the left, we need to come out of the gate swinging. Mm. All this kind of cowering, all this kind of, oh, we're embarrassed of our legacy, oh, the socialist experiments of the past. No, no. Come out of the gate swinging because the right is doing the same and they, they present to the world with their, their ugliness. Mm. And we can own our mistakes and say we, we learn from it. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I can't take anyone seriously who says, anyone who says hard left, radical left, un- unironically, I don't take you seriously. No. I can't take you seriously. <laughs> Look, I mean, I mean, that's absolutely, you're, you're entirely, entirely right. I mean, the left has made many mistakes and yes, let's acknowledge them. But that doesn't mean that we can't reinvent, you know, like uh, ways forward that, that will prevent these mistakes from being made. But, but exactly. also, I mean, what, what is fascinating as well is that how often the left is, or the, the hard left or the radical left, however people call it, you know, is being told, oh yeah, but you know what happened under Stalin, Mao, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah, but what happened under liberalism in the 18th and 19th century with slavery or civil rights movement? Exactly. And, you know, like all of these kind of things. This all happened under liberalism. It's like, and yet liberalism somehow can what's be What's happening today? Well, exactly. What's happening what? today, right? <laughs> and yet liberalism somehow gets a gets a blank slate every time as if as if it was like untouchable almost. And it's and I think it's fascinating. And I think we, we need to be prouder. And I think we need to avoid, again, I mean, you know, it takes us back to the culture wars. We need to avoid falling for right-wing narratives that tell us that the people are reactionary by essence, you know, and, um, you know, this is yeah. something that, that, you know, I've researched a lot with, um, with Aaron Winter, uh, you know, the kind of the yes. use of the white working class by, by reactionaries and how this is a complete kind of myth. And, and the left has fallen for it. This idea that Trump, yeah. Brexit, various far-right parties across the world have been elected by, by the working class. I mean, it's been rubbished by a lot of, of kind of analysis, and yet we've fallen for it. And, uh, and you know, it's fascinating to see that now you get J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, who won the primaries for the Republicans with the support of Donald Trump. But he was, he was the darling of a lot of kind of liberal outlets 
and, yeah. and center-left outlets in the in 2016, you know, when he was talking about the white working class and how they've been abandoned and how it's really hard to be white working class today and all that. It's like, oh, come on, wake up. Like, how is that white working class? And and, and also, like, what, what purpose, what interest does it serve to racialize the working class, to racialize exactly. the section of the population that is the most diverse? And, and it's fascinating that people have bought on the left the idea of the white working class when, I mean, it's so incredibly patronizing that it's so incredibly patronizing that that the, the working class or the white working class would have fallen for people like like Trump or, or Nigel exactly. Farage, a former stockbroker, rather than actually defending their own interests, as if they couldn't see that exactly. these people are not going to defend their interests. And, and and actually, if you look at the data, yeah, it's not it's not these people who pushed Trump who pushed Brexit. It's it's people who had a lot to gain. Exactly. By these by these politics, who had very little to lose, and then could you know argue back to some kind of reactionary ideas. But um, so I think we need we need again to reclaim ideas. We need to reclaim our pride in being left wing. We need to reclaim radicalism because we need it more than ever, and exactly. also because the right is being incredibly radical. And and somehow we feel on the left, but we should just be more moderate, more conciliatory. And it's it's fascinating because that's not what our enemies are doing. Uh, exactly. So let me ask you then, Dr. Rillian, who you're an author, I think a great thinker, researcher. If Lenin was to come back today and was to ask you to write, he wants you to rewrite what is there to be done for the 21st century. What are you writing in that book? Ha. Well, I think I think your I mean, <laughs> I think your you know your introduction of me is is, is way too kind. Uh, to be honest, and I don't think Lenin would come to me to write that book. There are many people who are much better placed to write it. But I mean, my two cents really are I think to I think what we really need to kind of re. I think there's lots of solutions, right? I think I think we know what needs to be done to some extent. I think one of the problems is we don't believe in it. We don't believe in it enough. We are still, again, gripped by this idea that history ended in the 1990s and liberalism, capitalism is our horizon and there's nothing beyond it. And we just yeah. need to wake up to that. And I think that, that means, you know, that means always taking a critical point of, point of view on on the kind of current hegemony, which is that kind of liberal capitalism, which, you know, has been in place for a very long time, which has been studied incredibly thoroughly, the mechanisms of which we know very well. And yet we are failing to counter through various, well, because of various issues, as I said before, because, yeah, well, we have to react to the rise of the far right, to the rise of reactionaries, but we can't just react. I think we need to act. So I think I think what's to be done is to make sure that we react to the far right, that we combat the far right, that we combat reactionaries in an intersectional manner and never forget that intersectional manner, but also that we need to act and that we again need to act in that intersectional manner that is not dividing are people between yeah. in kind of races, in genders, in sexualities, in, in ableism and so on. So I think, you know, we need we need to react to to oppression and to the rise rising tide of kind of oppressive movements, but we also need to act to dismantle oppression altogether and to and to offer a better future. And I think at the moment we're we're failing on that last one. Thank you so much. Such a, a dope conversation once again. I hope to have you again in the future. I'm going to leave Dr. Relly and Mondon's uh, socials in the comments. Please get his co-authored book with another guest I had before, Dr. Aaron Winter. I'll also post a book link. Honestly, I, I can't recommend it enough, guys. Like, please buy the book. Until next time you listen to Mama Do on The Malcolm Effect, please like, comment, subscribe, and drop a rating. Until next time, peace out.